Hi, everybody. My name is Mary G., and I am a very grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon. And I am a member, and this is the first time I'm saying this, I am a member of the East Aurora Al-Anon family groups. And I'm saying that for the first time because Leo and I just moved, and um, I have a brand new group. And uh, actually, we moved for the first time in October when we sold our house, and we moved for the second time Thursday, just two days ago. And uh, we came away here, leaving all the boxes and all the stuff, you know, unpacked down there. And uh, and God knows how to deal with me because he knows I would be a maniac this whole weekend trying to get this house that we've just built and moved into situated in one weekend. So he said, well, I'm sending you to Miami. And uh, I'm glad to be here. And it really is Miami Valley. Uh, This is the best place to be. I would hate to be in the real Miami today. I think this is 10 times better. You can go out and stand in the sun and it's great. I woke up this morning and I said to Leo, geez, I am just feeling blank. Now, part of it's probably the trauma of having moved twice in six months and not unpacking yet. But um, I always have like a little throwback, you know, some things I can talk about if I just don't know where I'm going. And I went in the bathroom and I thought, I'll just take a couple minutes. I'll just jot down a couple of those old standby things. And I pulled a piece of toilet paper off the roll while I was in there, you know, (laughs) so I had to write on. And you can see that I just did not fill that up (laughs) while I was in there. So, you know, when you're blank and when, when you're wondering and you're powerless, one of my favorite parts of this program is getting powerless. Because that's when I know God takes over. And so uh, that it's in his hands this morning because I don't have anything. I thought I might even lip sync my tape if they had it. <laughs> but I'm not so sure I could handle that either this morning. And then I had this loving encouragement from the table over here. You know, that's the best part about the program. There's always people there to lift you up and encourage you saying, you know, Mary, you are the first speaker of this occurrence, which has never taken place before. And, you know, you are... You're always going to be remembered as the first speaker we ever had, and, you know, there's no pressure here, and, you know, you are the first speaker of the day, and if you're bad, everybody's going to leave, and all the other speakers, so, you know, they sent me up there, up here with those really nice good wishes, and I just want to thank those guys for it. I hope that baby wakes up at 3 a.m. this morning. Uh, we were welcomed here last night at the airport by Shirlene and uh, Dixie holding a sign that said Mary and Leo. And I hear Shirlene was telling people at the airport that they showed up there every weekend with a sign saying somebody's name <laughs> so that they could just get hugs and meet folks. And, you know, that's kind of how the weekend the weekend started. There's just been kind of laughs and good feelings since we, we arrived. And um, you could just share this with Brent. I really liked his bed. I've been in Brent's bed, Dixie's husband, and it's a really good bed, and I just might stay longer than they think. So, you know, let that be part of it. Let let that message go forth when you come to Miami Valley. Find Brent's bed. But we've had a good time, and the the committee last night cooked us a great dinner, and um, the sun's out, and what could be better than being with the fellowship? And, uh, you know, as we, Leo and I, have built a townhouse um, on a golf course, and this, this is a far cry from where we started out 20-some years ago together, 29 in our marriage and 20-some in the program, and we were not in a place to think about the kinds of things we're thinking about today. And so when God said, you know, you're going off to speak today, even though I've got this beautiful place for you now on a golf course and it's brand new, brand spanking new, you know, 
my heart is just full of gratitude that the program gave us what we needed to be where we are today. And if coming and sharing how we got there with you is part of that package, I'm real glad that that's a piece of it. And uh, let me just tell you about where I came from. You know, if you tell your own story, how can you go wrong? Because no one else knows it. So, you know, if I miss something, you're not going to say, you know, you missed that part when you were 10 years old. When I was about seven, I'll just, I'll just start with this little story because I think it tells, tells you where I came from. When I was about seven years old, I spent a lot of summers on the Erie Canal Banks. My aunt and uncle had a little house there, and we played there. We went there every Sunday because my parents and my aunts and uncles would drink beer, eat clams, and throw them into the canal. I'm surprised it's not, like, built up right there. And so I spent lots of summers there, and I had a cousin who was just a couple of years older than me, a, a, a boy, and I was crazy about him. He was just the best cousin. He would let me be on, and he would pick me to be on his wiffle ball team. You know, no one ever picked me to be on their teams. I was a little one. And I just was crazy about him. There was nothing that uh, I wouldn't do for him. And one summer we were over at the neighborhood playground across the street from their house building sandcastles. And he was in the sandbox with me, and we were building these sandcastles together. And there was a neighborhood bully. There always is, right? And he kept running through the sandbox, and he would run right through our sandcastles and smash them. My cousin said to me, we were getting kind of aggravated, and he looked at me and he said, you know, we're going we're gonna to have a plan. We're going we're gonna to get this guy and we're going to stop it. Well, I was there, you know, saluting. Reporting for duty, sir, tell me the plan. I'm, I'm with you. So he said, we're going we're gonna to build the sandcastle again, and we're going to let him run through. And then we're going to rebuild it, and we're going to let him run through again. And then when he comes around again, the third time, we're each going to grab his leg. You grab one leg, I'll grab the other leg, we'll bring him down, he'll leave us alone for the rest of the day. I love this plan. So, you know, I'm ready, building the sandcastle, and sure enough, he comes running through, because that's what he'd been doing all the time, destroyed the sandcastle. We build it up again, and I'm ready, and he's coming, and I reach out, he's coming through, and I'm, I'm ready, and I'm grabbing his leg, and my cousin looks at me like, not yet, but I've got his leg, and I'm not letting go. And he pulled me all around this little playground with me not letting go over tree stumps. I mean, I was bad and bruised, but I did not let go. And you know what? I think that story tells you everything you need to know about me. (laughs) No, I was always out there too early, and I didn't let go. And I could probably say that 40-some years later, that's, uh, that's still the person that I am, and that's still one of the character defects I work on every day is learning to let go and not being out there just too early, you know. But I think what that also tells you and what I've just come to terms with in the last year or so is that what I came to my marriage with Leo with was a whole, you know, if I had that at seven, that wasn't something that I got when I married Leo, although I told him it was for some time because, you know, all my problems were his problems, right? So what I brought when I married, I met Leo when I was uh, 16 years old. We were high school sweethearts. And he was this cute little red-headed Irishman. And, you know, I fell in love at 16, and I, then I tried to get rid of Leo for the rest of my life. But I just never could. And we had one of those stormy relationships where it was go to get together, break up, get back together, break up. I mean, that was how we started at 16. And finally, when we were 21 years old, I said, what the heck, I might as well marry him. Because I can't seem to uh, be without him. And uh, I remember distinctly, Leo was in full full 
blossom in his, his drinking days at that point. He Actually, he was when we were in high school. <clears throat> and uh, some years ago, we were cleaning the attic. This is, this is three moves ago, you know. And I came upon a whole stack of little notes, letters. You know how you write notes in high school when you're in love? And actually, I wrote notes to everybody all the time. I don't think I ever did any work. I was busy writing notes. And uh, we found this whole stack of letter of notes that Leo and I had shared in high school. And, you know, as I read those notes, note after note said, do you have to go out drinking with the guys this weekend? Why don't you come over where I'm, you know, to my house or something? Do you have to, do you really have to be drinking with the guys this week? Now, do you think I should have noticed that? That there was something there? But no, you know, now it's stacked up. Having been in the program and looking at those notes, it was like, why didn't you know? Well, you don't know because you're in denial, and you don't know because you're in love, and you don't know because you don't want to know. And actually, Leo was not that different from the family that I came with. He fit right in from the beginning because that's what we did. You know, we, in my family, we drank when the, when it was Christmas, and we drank when it was Easter, and we drank because it was a weekend, and we drank because the sun came up, and, you know, that was part of, part of the life we led at my house. But I will tell you, it's been only in the last year that I have been able to be totally honest about that. And, you know, it takes what it takes in the program. And the denial that I had about who I was coming into as a child and my life really was only in this last year that I figured that out. In the last probably five or six years of um, my life, I've had several tragedies. I lost my sister in a plane crash. About two weeks after that, my mother uh, had a... uh, her heart failed, and we had to move her from her. She had to have a pacemaker put in. We had to move her from a, uh, her apartment to a living-assisted facility, and then just a couple of years after that into a uh, nursing home, which was the most traumatic experience of my adult life. Leo's mother got lung cancer and within two years died. Our dog died. I changed jobs twice. My brother got cancer. And, you know, through all that, I, it was a pretty traumatic time. I pretty much used myself up in these last four or five years. And because what I do, my tendency is you just say, oh, yeah, that happened, and you just keep moving. You know, you just keep going. You don't take too much time out to grieve because, hey, you got to keep moving, and you're above that, and you should have this in place. And, and so, you know, you just keep on going, and you pick your head up, and you let's just get through this. But, you know, when you reach a certain level of wellness, you, you can't do what you used to do anymore. And so in the last two years, I hit another bottom in my program. And I had to go get some help that I'd never gotten before. And I had to let myself grieve. And I had to let myself look at things. And I had to tell myself how angry I was at my sister. And the person that I was working with through all of this was helping me to see that all of that was bringing back some stuff that had happened very early in my life. When I was a little girl, my father had tuberculosis. He was away from our home, recovering for a lot of the time. Um, there was a lot of sickness in my home. There was depression in my home. I mean, we were, it was, there was a lot of drinking and things that come with that. But you know what? I had skipped through life thinking that that was, I just was, I wasn't part of that. That didn't happen. That didn't really happen to me like that. And Everything was great, and I just tucked all that stuff away and stuffed it down, and it was little Mary Sunshine. I put my smile on my face, and everything was just fine. You know, how are you, Mary? Fine. I'm good. Fine, yeah. 
How's Leo? Good. We're good. Boys, good. Everything's good at your house? Oh, we're fine. Yeah. And you know what? I believe that. Now, I, people have told me what fine means. Now, I won't share that with you today. I'm sure you have your own version. But during this time, I think what I understood was how much denial. I, I wasn't in denial about Leo and my, my life together. I was, I'd worked through that stuff, but I had never looked back at what had happened before that and what made me the person I was today. And I was, I had a, a younger a sibling. My mother had had a baby that died when I was probably three. And, you know, I don't think I understood the impact of what that would mean in my life uh, at that time. I, don't, I barely remember it. But what I do remember is that I was the happy little guy going around. You know, I was, I was lifting everybody up during this sad time. I was three years old. I was cute. I was, you know, I was Mimsy. That's my nickname. And uh, what I think I believed from that time on was that I could make people, I could make everybody feel better. You know, I think I absorbed all that at three years old, and then I went about my life trying to fix everything and make everybody feel better. And when I'm still doing it, at 20-some years old, still trying to make everybody feel better, now I understand where I came from and what I was about. I remember thinking that I was gonna—I was the first one in my family to go to college. My, I think my older sister had gone for a year, but she dropped out and got married because that's what everybody was doing then. And nobody had gone after her, and I was the first one to go, and I knew I was going. There was no doubt in my mind because my achievement was being smart. You know, what I didn't have any place else, I could, I could achieve because I was smart enough. And uh, I was going to carry the banner that our family was good and we were okay because I was going to just show you. I was going to be successful, and I was going to do the right thing, and I was going to make everybody proud, and that would tell everybody what our family was about. They wouldn't have to know the, about the bean sandwiches that we ate, you know, and the, and the times when there was no money and the times that – the bean sandwiches are a really interesting thing. <laughs> I uh, was talking to a friend of mine in the program. We were talking about being poor when we were kids and – how there wasn't anything, and she said, ah, oh, you know what I hated most about being being poor? These stupid beans we got. I hated those beans. And I said, I loved those beans. <laughs> My mother would make baked bean dinner on Saturday night, and I loved her beans. It was like her signature dish. <laughs> and I thought, you know, that told everything about me. I always took whatever there was, and I, I just said, this is great. But I was living in this kind of Funny little place. I thought, well, okay, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to go to, um, I'm going to go to Vassar. I'm going to, you know, those are the kind of places I was looking. And my father, I said to my dad, would you fill out the financial aid forms? And he just looked at me, and he wouldn't fill them out. He was, he was funny. And I, you know, for years I was angry with him about not filling out those forms. In the last two years, I realized he didn't fill out the forms because there was nothing to put on those forms, and he wasn't going to tell me that as his child. But I was in so much denial, I didn't even know, you know, just like the beans. I didn't know the beans meant you were poor. I just knew the beans were good. <laughs> Those are good things and they're bad things. I mean, the bad part was that I didn't have a clue. <laughs> and I was just going along in life, and, and I, I don't regret that. I think that God gave me that as a survival kind of thing. But I understand myself now a lot better from that perspective. And I'm glad to be on this side of all that pain. Uh, during the time I was doing all this, I did not want to do all this work. I remember sitting there, probably those of you who are in adult children or have gone through some of this kind of work, um, I just put that off. I, I wasn't doing that. And, and when I had to do that, I, I just said, I don't want to do that shit. I don't want to go back in that shit. That was my, that was my line. 
<laughs> I didn't even know that's what I thought about it until I heard it coming out of my mouth. And so we had to go back into some of that. And some during the time I was doing that, I was doing some reading, and there was a, a passage that was, what the locust has devoured will be restored. It's a biblical passage, and somebody has shared, shared with me since where that came from. And I thought, you know, that's exactly right. But alcoholism and sickness and poverty took has been restored. And when you've committed your life to your higher power and you've taken your third step and you live it every day, there's restoration and there's recovery. And I've had a chance to have two recoveries. You know, I had my first Al-Anon recovery, which was my first 19 and your 20 years in the program. And now I've had this chance for the second recovery, the recovery from what I've understood was my childhood. And I, I feel free, and I feel like I understand it, and I'm glad I did it, and I got a handle on it, and I don't have to dwell in it anymore. But I now I know where it all came from. And I know that my life in my, my uh, life with Leo was not the beginning of who I was and where I am. That all of that had come to pass, and what felt so right about Leo was because that was so right for the person that I was. Leo and I, I would have, if I hadn't met Leo, I would have met someone like Leo, although I know there is no one like Leo. And you will know there's no one like Leo after you hear him. But I would have met, I would, because that felt right. It was clear. So Leo and I are in a very different place right now. And it's kind of, what we're, we're trying to let ourselves enjoy it. We're trying to let ourselves be worthy of it. You know, because there's always those little messages, because, could this be happening for us? Are we really worthy of this? Are we good enough for this? You know, those little, those little messages that run through your brain and say, gee, you're in a real different place than you've ever been before. But I'll tell you what, feels good today. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to just accept that that's God's grace and live in it and be, be glad for the fact that what the locust took away from us, he's restoring. And I know that for everybody in this room, whether it's... And it's not the material piece of that that I'm talking about. It's that, that, it's that other piece. It's that gratitude and the, the ability to, to live the life that's been given to you with some joy. And uh, we've worked hard for the material part. So, you know, that's, plus we've committed ourselves to working for another 60 years. <laughs> you know, we won't be retiring next week, I can tell you that. But that's okay. And that's a risk that we're willing to take today that we've never, uh, we were not big risk takers. We were dreamers, but we weren't risk takers. So now maybe it's all coming together. When I was 16 and I fell in love with Leo and he was this cute little red, red-haired guy, uh, I just knew Leo was going to make life interesting. It wasn't going to be boring with Leo. And I will say it has never been boring with Leo. And I hope he says that about me because I think, you know, as you're together, uh, I'm, I'm not Leo. I'm not, I mean, I'm not Irish even. I'm German. You know how boring that is, really, you <laughs> know. Get this organized. Let's get everybody in a row. Let's measure the chairs. You know, are you all sitting at the same height? You know, that's that's who I am. That's who I am. Uh, let's make sure there's enough seats for everybody. And did we plumb? Did we plumb the uh, serving tables? You know, so that the food doesn't slip off the end. That's where I come from. Where Leo is, Leo is something else. You know, we moved into the house. I'm unpacking boxes Thursday. I'm killing myself. I'm getting tired. And Leo says, "Hey, it's the first day at our new house. I'm going out to play golf." And he did, you know. And the wonderful, yeah, the wonderful part is now, you know, I mean, I'm getting closer to saying, geez, why don't I do that more? 
You know, these boxes are still going to be here. And uh, that's what we give each other. You know, we're, we're, we're a really good balance. And I can say to Leo, okay, it's time to stop playing golf. Get your fanny in here. <laughs> and uh, there's stuff to do now. So, you know, the balance, the balance is there, and it's good to be together. When I came into the program, it wasn't because I had any need. I was the good one. He was the bad one. I married Leo knowing that he had a drinking problem. I wasn't willing to call it anything, but as my father was walking me down the aisle and I admitted this thing that sounded something like this, <laughs> and he turned to me and said, are you all right? I thought it and said, guess what? I'm fine. I'm fine. But I knew. I knew. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at it, but I knew. And from the very beginning, the drinking was a huge part of our relationship and our life. But, you know, we were happy. I, I, we were, there were those good times. There was lots of fun moments with Leo. And uh, I just was so busy being fine that I didn't look at much else. And the fighting over whatever the fights were about, basically they were about drinking, but they looked like they were about sex and money. Uh, and they, those were also problems <laughs> I could share with you later on. We're part of that relationship from the beginning. And I came to Al-Anon. You know, what I really wanted was, as I stayed with Leo longer, I really knew that Leo, as I knew that I was the good one and he was the bad one, proven over and over again, which I shared with him on a regular basis. Uh, I knew that I was the martyr in the family. I had learned that role at my mother's feet. I was good at it. And I would imagine when, when things were really getting bad that Leo would somehow leave our lives. I, I, I would never kill him myself because I was too good and nice. But I would always hope that he would just, something would happen, you know, there'd be some tragedy or some woman would take him away from me and I could be their best woman at their wedding. <laughs> no, and it would all just work out fine. Leo would be gone and I could go on living my life. And uh, at that time... I, I just wanted to keep my hands clean, but I wanted Leo gone. And, uh, you know, so I would plan. I never planned death. I never planned Leo's death. Some people I know have gone to those lengths, but I planned funerals. And I always thought, you know, they really should get together a little book in Al-Anon, the little red book of funerals, because I think we've got stories about planned funerals and getting the insurance money and whatever else, you know. We could probably put together, a, we could have we could have weekend conventions on Al-Anon funerals, you know, the funerals we planned. So here was mine. I would be, Leo would have met his demise, poor thing. And I would be at his funeral. And I would be wearing my navy blue Al-Anon jacket because, you know, we didn't wear colors. We, wear, we wore dark brown, blue, gray, you know, because that's where we lived. I, was, I knew I'd arrived in Al-Anon the day I painted my... My fingernails red and wore some really bright, you know, a bright jacket. I knew that I was now a person because I came out of this gray, blue, navy blue, you know, mode. But in this day at the funeral, I was in my, my navy blue blazer. And I was standing next to the casket, and I was also wearing my pins. The pins were my awards. The pins were the awards I got from living with Leo, the bad one. There were like little charms. There was a bar and there were little charms hanging from the pen. There was a garbage can charm. There was a checkbook charm. There was a lawnmower charm. Because those are all things I did. 
You know, I mowed the lawn, I carried out the garbage, I did the checkbook, and I took over, and I was organizing, you know, are you all sitting at the same height? That was good. And I would say, you know, I would be doing all that, keeping our life going, while I'd be saying to the bad one, I didn't say it out loud, but why don't you go out and drink? Because I got it all under control here. You know? And I was a martyr, and I'd be wearing my pins. I'd be standing there wearing my pins proudly while Leo was laid out there. And people would come by, our friends and our neighbors would come by, and they'd look at Leo, and you know what they'd say? Isn't she a good woman? That's what they'd say. And you know what? I didn't know that that was how I got my self-esteem. I wasn't doing anything for myself. I would totally stopped having life because I was attached to Leo. You know, it's hard to have your own life when you're leading somebody else's life, isn't it? Nobody's identifying with this. I can see that. I'm totally unique in this. And it always felt to me like that there were these invisible threads that attached me to Leo. You couldn't see them, but they were there and they were strong. And if Leo went like this, I went like this. And if Leo was up, I was up. And if Leo was down, I was down. And that's how I lived life. And I came to you. Finally, I came to you. And you said to me, you taught me about detachment. And you told me that detachment was like cutting those threads and freeing myself up from Leo. Oh, my God, what an interesting experience. You know, I had to pretend that Leo was dead in order to practice detachment in my first years in the program. Because literally, whatever Leo was doing was where I was focused. We were talking this morning about having lived near a church. We lived near a Polish Catholic church when we first got married in our apartment. And Leo would come home from one of his evenings out, and Leo would be passed out in the car on Sunday morning. And, of course, you knew what my job was. My job was to somehow get him out of the car where everyone was going to notice him, going to this Polish Catholic church, and get him up the stairs into our apartment and take his pants off and hang them up so they didn't get wrinkled for tomorrow. The pants were a big thing. Getting the pants. I don't know if my mother told me this. I'm talking about making sure the pants were hung up. But I would, so I would be down there on this Sunday morning early, worrying and trying to get this dead weight off the car, up the stairs. Now, which do you think, if you were going by there, which would be noticeable? A guy just quietly sleeping in the car? Or this woman trying to cart a dead body up the stairs of her house? There was no insanity in that, though, right? So those are the kinds of things I did before I was coming to you. I was a window waiter, you know. Okay, he will be home after this, if there's a blue car, then he'll be home three cars after the blue car. <laughs> and I was a bar caller. I had, you know, I had my list of bars. In fact, I didn't even put them in alphabetical order. It would take too long, so I had one page. I just flipped to it, and I'd start calling bars. I was compulsive. That was my compulsion. I was a compulsive bar caller. And so I would start at the top, and they'd, you know, I'd bring up the bar, and they'd say, uh, I'd say, is Leo Gregory there? This would be 3 a.m. or whatever. And they'd say, Leo, are you here? And I wouldn't hear anything, and and then he'd say, no, he's not here. So I'd call the next bar, Leo, are you here? No, I'm not here. Tell her I'm not here. Okay. I'd say, thank you very much. I'd call the next bar, you know, even though I heard him say that. (laughs) I could not stop myself from calling bars. That's just what I did at 3 a.m., you know. I had nothing else to do. That that, That was my focus, you know. What, go to bed? No, I don't think so. So it took me a long time in the program to get over that bar calling. When I came to you and you told me to stop doing that stuff, I didn't know what to do with my life. I had no idea what to, how to fill the time. You know, 
I, I had used my time in worrying. No, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I can't join that committee. I've I got to stay home and worry. Nope, I can't go to that because it's worrying night. Leo won't be home and i got to worry about where he might be. And You know, geez, the kids and I are going to just sit around and yell at each other and worry till till he comes home and then when he comes home we're going to he's going to be mad and he's going to he was not a quiet drunk and so then we got to be worrying about that so you know life stopped i had stopped doing anything i couldn't even drive my car yeah i you know you, you get isolated you close yourself in i had a job where i went every day being fine but other than that i was home i'd stop. i didn't know how to live anymore and i remember coming into the program and for the first time having to drive down into the city of buffalo myself to renew my driver's license and I had to go by myself, and I thought, "Whoa, oh, I really deserve a driver's license, right? But that's how my life had gotten. So I came to, to Alan, and you gave me this slogan. This is my first slogan. You gave me the slogan, live and let live. And I bought that slogan the first night. Because what live and let live said to me was that Leo was in early sobriety. We came together. We walked down the street together to our first meeting, and Leo went upstairs with the AAs, and I went to the basement. Uh, that's what we deserve. But the Al-Anons, where we sat crushed in this small little room, <laughs> took us about five years to move to a real room, you know. But, you know, you get well when you get well. I'm glad to see you have this spacious place here today. It's a really good sign of recovery. You know, we weren't deserving of not squishing down there, were we? No. So... I went to this room, and they talked to me, and I knew I was home that first night. I knew I was home. I knew I belonged there. I heard them. They told me I didn't cause this problem. I couldn't cure it, and I couldn't control it, and I felt like somebody took this weight off my shoulders and moved it to the side, and I bought that the first night. But the slogan, live and let live, Leo, Leo slept in his early recovery as much as he ever drank. No one told me that, that, you know, that he had to do a lot of sleeping, that that was part of his physical recovery, and nobody told me that the mental recovery didn't allow him to get out of bed because he had no strategies for living. You know, and getting out of bed was a scary thing to do for, for him where he was. I didn't know any of that. I just knew now where he was drinking, he was sleeping. And life still wasn't started, you know. Wake up, Leo, so life can start. But you said, live and let live, Mary. And I heard that as live. Me, neon lights, Klieg lights, flashing lights, and let live. If Leo wanted to sleep for the rest of his life, that was his right as a human being, but it didn't mean that I had to wait. And so when you told me live and let live, you opened the world to me. And in that first year, I did everything I could to live. The person who couldn't drive down the street in her car decided she needed to drive to Boston to see her sister-in-law. And so that was one of my first little forays out. The person who couldn't leave the house, her friend would call up and say, Mary, you want to go for a walk? Well, Leo was sleeping and the kids needed somebody to take care of them. You know, I took that risk and I said, Leo, I'm going for a walk. And Leo did not like it. I'll tell you that. There was a lot of walls being punched in. And, and I said to myself, is going for a walk really worth this? And you know what? Your voice said to me, you betcha it is. And so I would go with my friend for a walk, but we would walk very fast. <laughs> you know, and we would just get out there, and I'd be sitting at the wheel of this car trying to drive, going like shaking like this, saying, where the heck am I? And you know what? Within a year, I was a, I'd been a French teacher at the time. I took my kids to France. 
And you gave me that. And I remember coming back and wearing my Paris T-shirt to an assembly meeting and feeling like you'd given me that. You know, this was your T-shirt. And since then, life has just opened up and been better and better. And, you know, I've learned to do whatever I want to do. And I see how Leo feels about it, and then I do it anyway. (laughs) And I make him, I drag him with me. You know, this whole golf course thing, poor Leo, he was ready to pay off the mortgage and retire. And um, I suggested we look for a ranch house. You know, I was ready for a ranch. This was not even, this was that last year at this time. Just starting to think about this. And, you know, he was not interested in this. But here we are, you know, now he's out playing golf and I'm unpacking. So, you know, he goes with me in my adventures. But what I've learned is this is the only life I've got. This is what you told me. You said, Mary, this is your life. You don't get another one. This isn't a dress rehearsal. This is it. Live it. Live it. I didn't know how. When I first came into the program, I said to my sponsor, she was so terrific, I said to my sponsor, so what do I do with myself with this time that is now freed up, that you don't want me to be paying attention to what he's doing? And she said, make an Afghan. And I said, oh, my God, that's so big. I think I could do that. So I made potholders. <laughs> Because, you know, they were little, like, you could get them done, you could go, boy, that was really good, you know? Pat yourself on the back. And, you know, it all just got bigger and better. And she said, she said, why don't you come with me to service? I was, in nine, I was in the program nine months, and I was speaking at an assembly. And this is, this is where I was at nine months. The assembly was crazy. I mean, if you've ever, I've never been to an assembly, either AA or Al-Anon, it's worth, it's worth going for laughs and growth. When you first go, you can't believe anything gets done because it's, I mean, everybody's nuts. And at this one, this, this Al-Anon assembly, they were, they, were, they were voting on buying some stuff to give away as, I don't know, books or whatever. Well, yeah, do you want to do this? Yeah, everybody's raising their hands. And then later somebody said, should we ask the treasurer if there's any money? <laughs> so I got up and raised my hand. Now, I've been in the program nine months. I've never been in a service thing in my life. And I raised my hand and I say, you know, if you use Robert's Rules of Order, and they were, you know, they were so polite. This room full of people who had been doing this a long time, they looked at me and they said, Honey, this is Al-Anon. And I said, Oh. <laughs> and I sat down and I got involved in service. And I've had the privilege of serving my group and my inner group and my state. And Leo and I had the, the pleasure and the privilege of both being delegates for our fellowships at the same time. And what I learned in service was priceless. The recovery, I think, in service is like no other. The reason for that is everyone in service is willing to help you with your character defects. And if you haven't seen them, they'll point them out to you. And, you know, there's no way around having to deal with yourself when you get into service. And you have to get rid of the I and you have to look at the we. And more than anything else, this is a program of we. During the time that I was, in the last couple of years that I've gone, was going through some of the stuff I was going through, I, I stayed away from the program. It's the first time in my whole life that I ever stayed away from the program, but I couldn't, I couldn't balance it all at once. So, I started living this I program. You know? I can take care of this. I can, I can figure this out. I can, I can do this on my own. And when I, uh, when I came back to my, my new group, 
that I've just moved to, and a new group of people. I started I started feeling the we of the program all over again because I was listening differently now. You know, when you're in the same group for 20 years, you know you know where everything is. You know where everybody's gonna pretty much what everybody's gonna say. You, you you're not you stop hearing. You just stop listening. And in this new group, I don't know anybody, and I'm listening so carefully. And what I feel in the in the power of those rooms, like I feel in the power of this room, is we all come together and we share it with one another. There's something that happens here about we. In mode, I'm not gonna. No, I don't think I'll go to that meeting tonight because I gotta stay home and read my book. No, I'll, I'll just think. I, I just need time to think tonight. They said, yeah, staying home with yourself is like going to a meeting with a fool. I said, oh, well, okay, then maybe I'll go. You know, because you can't do it. We did it by ourselves. Our thinking is what brought us to the program and got us here. And as soon as you start to do it on your own again, something's missing. Because the God and God that we feel in one another is what, what makes us heal and brings us together. We have two kids. They're not kids anymore. They're grown men, Leo and I. They're out getting reasonable. I don't know which program they'll end up in, but they probably can deserve both at this point, you know. But letting go of letting go of your kids is like letting go of your husband, is like letting go of your old furniture, is like letting go of your old life. And that's something I'm learning at at this at this point in time is you can't you can't um you can't move on carrying old stuff. You can't you can't make a breakthrough without having a break with. And as hard as it is, even Leo and I have been laughing because I brought all my old furniture, which fit in the old house that I had, into this other place, and doesn't doesn't fit there, you know. But I've had it forever, and some of it was Leo's aunt's, and and it, I, it's hard to let go of that stuff, you know. So so what I, I'm doing is I'm putting it in the basement, you know, because I can't really let go of it yet. We were talking yesterday, I think. Somebody's ready to just sell it all, get rid of it. Move on in life. And I will tell you, when we moved from our house and we filled an entire Ambet's truck with stuff that was in the attic for about, you know, the whole lifetime, I felt so light. I felt light. It's like I want to shed a lot and free myself and move on. I heard a, I heard a speaker once, um, an Al-Anon speaker, and she had been under a lot of abuse from her husband and really serious physical and mental and verbal abuse. And she was up there and she changed her life and she changed what she was doing. And she, she just, she changed it all to free herself. And I remember her line was, you want to change your life, change your whole life. And I didn't say that because I'm too nice. <laughs> and you know, she's right. If you want to change your life, you got to change your life. I can't do that by myself even now, but I can do it with you and I can do it with the help of the higher power that I found in this program. I didn't, I'd grown up having a higher power. I wasn't really angry with them. When I came to the program, if anybody would even say I'd left all that behind, you know, I wasn't doing the, I wasn't doing the stuff anymore. I'd grown out of that. I was too sophisticated. I feel like I was too sophisticated for the slogans when I came in. People would be saying the slogans at the table and I'd go, oh my God, so trite, you know. How can they really believe this? But, you know, they were laughing, and I wasn't. So, hey, you know, I thought I'd give up my intellectual status and maybe have some fun in life. 
And uh, they they would say, you know, you, you turn your day over to your higher power in the morning. You know, you say a little prayer, I give you this day, God, and um, give me the power to help me carry out your will. And I would think, oh, my God. So I'd get up and I'd say, well, God, if you're out there, and by the way, I don't really think you are, I give you this day and, you know, whatever. <laughs> and you know what? God would just meet me there. He met me at that place. And I remember taking that third step. I was in the program a year. Leo had been sober a year, and I was still miserable. And I was going to drive to my mother's in Rochester for the weekend. I had two kids. I'd asked my sister to take care of the kids. And you know what? I almost couldn't go. I, I just couldn't give myself that right to go. And so I, I got in the car, and I cried for the first 20 minutes in the car. And you know that was God. Just I was laying on the bed saying, I can't do it anymore. And that's where God found me. And the minute I became powerless over my own life, he found me. And he lifted me up and he's been moving me ever since. That's why I can't ever wait. When I'm having a problem, I can't wait till I get powerless. But it does not come quick. <laughs> you know, I'm still saying, if I can only think of the right thing to say, if I can only think of the right thing to do, you know, if everybody would just line up and do it this way, things would be right. But I'll tell you what, when I get to that place where I just can't figure it out anymore, that's where God says, I'm there. And that's what I've learned in the program, and that's where he's moved me, and he's taken me to places I never thought about going. And you taught me that. You taught me about powerlessness. You taught me about a program of we. You taught, taught me about service, giving of myself and get, getting rid of the I, giving up martyrdom. And you taught me, taught me about serenity. You had to tell me about serenity. You know, you had to explain the serenity prayer to me. I was in the program a number of years saying the serenity prayer, God grant me the serenity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I would think, you know, okay, if I can, if I can calm down, and if I can get everything right and everything, then I'll be, I'll, I'll have serenity. You know, if I can change the things I can, and if I can let go of the things I can't change, then I'll have serenity. And it occurred to me that the prayer says, God, grant me the serenity first to accept the things I cannot change. That took me a long time. I was still thinking it had to do with me and what I was doing. I didn't know it had to do with this free gift God was handing out. You ask, you get it, and then everything levels out. I used to say the serenity prayer like a litany when the kids were little in the bathtub. And I'd be I'd be losing it by the time that they were time for bed, you know, two little guys making me crazy. They'd be in the bathtub doing what little kids do at the end of the day, you know, whooping it up, having a good time, and I'd be jerking their arms out of the bathtub. You know, I'm surprised they're not walking around like like this today because I was an arm jerker. I used to sit on a sit on the edge of the bathtub going to say the serenity prayer over and over and over and over again until I calmed down. And I, I didn't know I was getting free grace. That's really what it was, you know. It was a freebie. I just didn't know. All I had to do was ask and wait, and it came. I was still thinking I had to do all the steps. Then I would get that. It was the reward, you know. You're talking about steps. In fact, I had a little charm for sex and my funeral outfit. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't know I had the charm. I was speaking once, and um, I was talking about how, I, how Leo and I had worked through that, that part in our relationship that had everything to do with everything. And, you know, like you can be nice to each other during the day, but, boy, get in bed and that's where the rubber meets the road. Huh. Safe sex message. <laughs> <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha
And, uh, you know, I'd be, I'd be talking, I'd be, we'd be, we'd be having these times. Leo, Leo would come home drunk. He didn't smell real good and he would want to make love, you know, not real tempting. And I was, because I was so good. I was so good. I didn't, you know, okay. It's part of my duty, my wifely duty, you know, so, so I would make love with him and, you know, my body was still young. My body didn't know I, it was as mad as my brain did. So, you know, what I would do is, as my body became involved in this sex act, my good self, Sister Mary Gregory, would rise up <laughs> out of the bed. And I would just kind of hover there, you know, till the dirty deed was done. And then I would descend back into myself. And then life could go on, you know, and that's how we did sex during those days. And so I was telling that story someplace once, and this lady in the front row said, so what was your charm for that? <laughs> so, you know, I, I, as I was being Sister Mary Gregory and I was kind of levitated above the bed, this dance hall chick was down there in the bed really doing the thing. So I told her my charm was a cowboy boot with a spur on it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was my little sex charm. But you taught me about intimacy, and you taught, you taught Leo at the same time you were Thank you very much for that, by the way. You know, I was grateful for AA because it was finally, Leo had a sponsor that was about this huge, and he loved me, by the way. And so he, would, he and Leo would take his inventory against a wall, and I could go out and do something fun. <laughs> and I knew that AA, Leo was in good hands in AA, and, you know, you were taking care of him. You taught him as much about intimacy as you were t- teaching me. And we came to know that intimacy had nothing to do with sex, but intimacy had to do with sharing the most basic part of yourself with somebody and trust in it. And the rest was what just happened. Leo and I were in, invited to talk someplace, doing a panel on intimacy. And we both laughed. We were just saying, we can't believe we're doing this. We used to kill each other, you know. It's hand-to-hand combat. We're up here now. We're talk- we're, let, let us tell you about intimacy. Again. <laughs> like, right now we go home and go, you believe we did that? Oh, my God. But you gave us that. You know, you gave us that. You told us about all the things that were really important to us, and you told us how to be real people, and you told us how to get rid of all the baloney and just live in God's grace and blessing. And uh, what the locust has has devoured, the locust of alcoholism, the locust of all that stuff we live with, has been restored to us. And I'm sure there's still more to be restored. When I was a little girl, we were into ironing stuff, you know, and... uh, Oh, is, I have to I have to stop right here because there's one other story I have to tell because if I don't tell it, I will hear about it. As I was learning how to be in God's will, I didn't get it because I had my will was my will was God's will, wasn't it? You know, I, that's all I knew is what my idea to make this work was and had the answers and you know. And so you had to teach me how to know what was God's will and how to live in God's will, and I didn't have a clue about that. And you know. I didn't understand that if you just move and, you know, the stream is moving this way and you just turn and you go with the stream. That's close to being in God's will because I was always trying to go upstream, you know, fighting against the current, getting tired, getting mad because that's how I thought it should be. But you told me stories. And one of the stories you told me was was how I could um, learn to live in God's will was to think about this. If you're in a boat, you're out in the boat and you're rowing, you're on a life lake and you're rowing and rowing the boat. God's in, God's in the back. God's moving the tiller, you know. And you're rowing and you're going all over the lake and everything's really great. And then you say, geez, you know, God, I wonder if you could uh, row 
and I'll take the tiller. God would always say to me, sure, Mary, I'll let you do that. So I'd get up and, you know, I'd take the tiller because I wanted to determine the direction we were going in. And you know what happened? Nothing. And you know why that is? Because God don't row. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's how you taught me how to live this program. You stay rowing and you let God handle the tiller and everything's going to be okay. And uh, sometimes I do that today. When I was a kid, we used to iron a lot. My mother used to sprinkle clothing. Remember, some of you are old enough. God, Leo and I have been walking around going last night, these people are so young. How do we get to be the old guys in the program? How the heck did this happen? You know, we came when we were 30. We were the young guys, but we're not anymore. So my mother would be ironing these clothes, and she'd sprinkle them. You know, you had to sprinkle them. And sometimes you put this little sprinkler thing in a beer bottle or a pop bottle, whatever you had in your household. Guess what ours was? And so we, you know, we'd sprinkle the clothes, and you'd roll them up, and you'd put them in these little sausage-like things, and you'd put them in a wicker basket, which had a vinyl liner with strawberries or cherries or whatever, you know. You had one, didn't you, at their house? And then they had to be in there, and they had to, like, cook in there together or something. I don't know. Those little rolls of clothes telling jokes or whatever they did in there, you know. And when the moment was right, you could take these out. And my father had these white shirts. And, you know, they were, if you wanted to see something that was wrinkled, look at the white shirt after it's been sprinkled and rolled up and kept in here for however many hours or days or whatever it had to be. And I remember thinking that my life before the program was like one of those iron shirts. It was a wreck. It looked like you could never fix it. It looked like those wrinkles were going to be in there forever. And because I was the person I was, I would try to get the wrinkles out by just pushing down on them. I can just smooth this out. I'll get the wrinkles out. Sheer will. I'll get them out. And then I came to you. And you told me about the third step. And you know, the third step was like getting an iron. And you said, look, Mary, you take the third step. And you, you know, that iron just goes over the clothes. God's will, not yours. Smooth it right out. I loved it. And I kept coming. And then you told me about the 11th step. Plugging it in. And you know what? When you plug that iron in and you do it every single day, now you got something going. And there's this force of power and this energy and there's this heat that now you can just smooth out the wrinkles of that shirt with no trouble at all. Sometimes I get a little far down the ironing board and the plug comes out, you know, and you have to remind me to go plug back in. But you did teach me that there is a source of love and a source of energy and a source of power that can smooth out anything we've got in our lives. We do it together in these rooms. And you know what? Even though I've got this house that's got to be unpacked, I can't think of wanting to be anyplace else but right here, right now, at this time. And I thank you so much for inviting Leo and I. I love you very much.